April of 2006, the building of an elegant luxury condo tower on South Padre Island, Texas began. Ocean Tower was touted as having Italian marble floors, granite countertops, steel appliances, stainless steel fixtures, custom cabinets, oversized jacuzzi tubs, and showers. It was the latest and the greatest addition to the island in years. Units were being sold at $2 million a piece, and there were 134 units in the building. It was gorgeous. You would be able to view the Gulf of Mexico from your condo, and you would be able to have an eagle-eye view of the majority of South Padre Island. Of course, all of the amenities would be included in this tower. It was gonna be fantastic. There was a small problem, however. In May of 2008, two years into the construction of this gorgeous ocean tower, cracks began to appear in the two-story parking structure, and a strange angle was found on the building. Construction halted. It was discovered that they had been using expanding clay in the building of this tower, and when pressure is applied to this clay, it collapses. And the entire core of the building had sunk into the clay before it hit bedrock about 16 inches. <laughs> You'd have to stand like this in there, wouldn't you? Look at the ocean. Wow. In 2009, the building was eventually condemned, and they had a monitored implosion, dynamite implosion, that they took it all down with. $75 million gone in about six seconds. Ocean Tower is no more. I had the privilege of seeing it when it looked like this. It never got beyond this stage of completion. This is not the first, nor I fear will it be the last building that has a faulty foundation that will lead to its ruin. In 1913, some of you might remember this, the Transcona, no? Nobody? <sighs> I'm always hopeful. All right. Uh, in 1913, the Transcona grain elevator was built, and they started to pump grain into it at harvest season, and 35 degrees later, they realized something was wrong, right? So they had to evacuate all of the grain that they had poured into this elevator. The cupola on the top has fallen off, and the rubble that you see at the bottom is the stations that you could run up and down and look down at the grain towers inside of. It all fell off. So eventually, they were able to save this grain elevator. They didn't destroy it. They emptied it out. They pumped all the grain back out. They fortified the piers underneath the structure and re-elevated it. It's like it's, it's on stilts. And they still use the Transcona grain elevator, to my knowledge. And of course, the most famous tilted building in the world would be the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? Built over two centuries, from 1172 to 1372, it still stands in the city of Pisa. 
I have a picture of me and my brother and sister on every level of the tower. It was pretty fantastic to see. It hasn't fallen, but they have had to reshore the foundations repeatedly, the most recent of which was done in the 90s when the tower was closed for nearly 10 years and they had to reshore those basements. If you've ever walked around the back side of the tower, they have lead counterweights on the base of the tower trying to pull it back to normal. What we build on really matters, right? Here in Pisa, it was clay, Transcona, same issue. Ocean Tower, same issue. What we build on is essential to healthy and safe building. Massive skyscrapers have pylons that sink all the way down to bedrock. In Walla Walla, where I live, many of the homes are built on what is called a crawl space foundation. Now, I've never seen this before I moved to Walla Walla. It's weird. There's, it's strange. It looks like they have poured a curb around the edge of a house, and there's a couple of rooms that get some of that curbing on the inside, and it's six to eight inches tall and it's concrete, and then they build floors in between that with rafters and stuff, and you can use that as a crawl space for plumbing and different things, and it's, it's unique. The house almost floats, floats on top of this curb-like foundation. Just as a foundation of a building is permanent, or paramount, pardon me, it's really essential to the building. The same is also true for our internal foundation. The construction of our ideals, our values, our behaviors, these come from a foundation that is laid in us. Here's the thing, you are the bedrock that that foundation lays on. You're the bedrock. What is built on top of you matters. So as we keep digging into Colossians, and I'd like to say thank you so much for extending the invitation to be a part of this series and being the first fully haired pastor. <laughs> to be, you're welcome, Icky and Patty, uh, to be a part of this. Uh, thank you very much. So we find that Paul is arguing that the type of foundation that is needed in life uh, of a Christian is very specific. The foundation you build for your life is essential to having a quality life. Paul is using his very rich philosophical education to challenge the Colossians to think about the foundation of their very lives and the consequences of building on anything other than the firm foundation of Jesus the Christ. I wanna invite you to pray with me as we continue to sink into scripture. God in heaven, we are here and we are opening your word and we ask for a fresh revelation of you. May we see you more clearly, may our lives be more steadfast and firmly rooted in who you are and how you are leading us and guiding us. We trust you, Father, and so we ask for your presence here in your name, amen. Now, I wanna ask if you would be so kind as to join me in opening your scriptures. Some of you brought an iPad. Some of you brought an Android. I know that there's a debate in this church about Apple versus Android. Let's just say they're both A's. So whichever you choose to use, 
Uh, I'd like to ask you to turn with me to Colossians chapter one. If you would prefer a physical Bible, there are some in the pew right in front of you, and I'd ask you to open up to Colossians chapter one with me. We're going to start reading at verses fifteen. At verse fifteen, and uh, thank you so much, Jackie, for reading for us. I've never heard that version before, so that was really fantastic. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but whatever you have will be perfect. We're going to start in verse fifteen and read through verse twenty. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Have you noticed something about Paul as we've been going through the book of Colossians? Paul does not write in plain English. Uh, Paul didn't even write in plain Greek. So these verses seem to be a not of layers of ideas twisted in and built upon each other that assume a lot of understanding and a lot of basis in the scriptures and in the history of Jesus. Now, when I was learning Italian, I speak Italian as my second language. When I was learning it, I made some classic foils, like bad. I said inappropriate things. But the highlight of my learning Italian was that I asked a barista at a local cafe not for a slushy, which is a granita, right? It's granita, like a grain, grainy. They slush up the ice and then they add flavoring to it. But instead, I asked him for a granata, which is a hand grenade. Language can be a fabulous tool, but it can also be very confusing. (laughs) So uh, we're not going to have any hand grenades lobbed at us this morning. Unfortunately, you're not also getting slushies. (laughs) But we are going to look at some of the words that Paul uses because it helps us understand what he's saying in this sort of convoluted, run-on paragraph sentence, which he is famous for. Right? So in between these interwoven layers of words, Paul is urging people to get very clear about one thing, one person, in fact, and that is Jesus. Paul is asking this infant Christian movement to know who Jesus is. He wants them to know about what Jesus has done and what Jesus is continuing to do. Paul is advocating for all followers of Jesus to understand 
Jesus. Because sometimes we can get a little unclear about what we need to be looking at. Because we are here chasing Jesus today, it would benefit all of us as we understood this language a little bit better. So let's dig into a bit of the wording that Paul uses here. If you have your Bible still open to Colossians chapter one, you will see that Jesus is noted as the firstborn of all creation. Does anybody else have an issue with that word, firstborn? Um, Adam and Eve, and then they had babies. Jesus was not the firstborn. What? Is the Bible lying to me? Now, we have records of thousands of human births before Jesus was even a twinkle in his mother Mary's eye. So he wasn't the firstborn in the sense of being firstborn as we understand it, right? I have a brother and a sister. My brother is older than me, although when I was a child, uh, he's born in October and I'm born in September, I was convinced that that meant I was older, despite the fact that he arrived two years earlier. Didn't get it for a while. Math is still hard, it's okay. So he's the firstborn in my immediate family. He is the first child of my parents. And when we think about firstborn, that's where our minds go, right? Jesus was the firstborn, but wait, he's not. So what is Paul talking about when he says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Because he's not literally born first. We got a Cain and Abel story that we had from thousands of generations before Jesus arrived on earth. When we reflect back at the culture in which Paul was writing and the understanding of that day, firstborn could certainly carry the same meaning as we think about today, right? The first child born in a family or to a person. It could often be qualified with of her mother or of his father or of that generation. If you still have your Bibles open, look with me in Luke 2 verse 7. This is an example that we find of this clarification of birth uh, in the Bible, right? So of firstborn. Luke 2 verse 7, it says this, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So here it's qualified, right? This is Mary's firstborn son. When we have the firstborn of all creation, it's a little bit different. Firstborn also has a meaning that has fallen out of common use today. Yes, it could mean that the person is the firstborn of a family, but it also means that they are supreme in rank. Doesn't have anything to do with a literal birth. Jesus has existed since long before the first human arrived. And scripture points to his presence at creation, making the world in which we live now. And continuing to remain with his creation in a physical form. So the long existence of Jesus since before this world was born, Jesus was, 
This gives us some understanding of his rank, his importance to the human race. He was long before, he is and he will be. He is important. It is very important that we understand this language of Paul. Now Jesus knows this creation very well because he created it, he made it, and he joined it in his own body. He did not remain aloof and at a distance. Instead, he took on physical form and became a part of the creation. Now, Paul pops in a couple of verses later, this gem. Look at first at Colossians 1, verse 18. Are you there? You see firstborn again? Colossians 1, verse 18. He's the firstborn from what? The dead? Maybe you and I have a slightly different experience of death, but when people die, they're not born. They're dead. Right? So, Paul, what are you doing? Paul is talking in this convoluted sort of language. Does that mean he's number one dead person? No, that's right. No, that's not what that means. So Paul is asking us again to think beyond our typical understanding. We know that there were people who had died and had been resurrected before Jesus died and was resurrected, right? So he's not the first person to be brought back from the dead either. The widow of Zarephath. Her son, raised from the dead. The Shunammite's son, raised from the dead. The widow of Nain, raised from the dead. Jairus's daughter, raised from the dead. Lazarus, raised from the dead. Jesus is following a line of people who have been raised from the dead. And here he comes being claimed as the firstborn from the dead. Now, it is something unique about Jesus that he is the first person ever to have not sinned and died and come back to life. He is the firstborn in that. His sinless life and death, that is what causes the divine of God and humanity to be reconciled. Who Jesus is, is drastically important. Jesus did all that was needed to break down any barrier that would prevent any of creation from accessing the divine. If there is anyone who needs an all-knowing, all-loving, almighty God, Jesus has made that fully available to us. Jesus made the good and the wonderful and the powerful, all of those aspects of life, freely open to all people. It's so important that we don't try to, the, to add to the core of G, who Jesus is. Jesus' existence at creation, his conquering of sin and of death, his life after death, all remind us that we do not need more than Jesus to have all that God offers. 
Salvation is not a game of addition. It is a Jesus all kind of deal. The Colossians had some ideas that maybe Jesus wasn't enough. And so when Paul writes this paragraph about the firstborn and being present of cre at creation and the, the fullness of God living in him, the Colossians were saying, well, we're not so sure that Jesus is enough. That everything that he did and all that he means is sufficient for us. So they needed to add like some secret handshakes and some secret knowledge to sweeten the pot. Because then if you know the secret handshake, you're in. Yeah, Murdoch and I, we're gonna start a secret handshake. It's gonna be awesome, but it's not gonna save us. Sorry. So Jesus is all that is needed to access growth, to access transformation, peace, strength, hope, to access God, because he is the author of all of those things, right? So Jesus doesn't need help to save us. He did all that needed to be done to save us. Salvation taken care of. Paul asks us to be very clear that we know Jesus, not a set of rules or a set of guidelines or added steps in order to get to heaven we must. Knowing about someone is very important, but like the Colossians, it is not the most important thing because knowing about someone will never be knowing someone. Jesus tells us in John chapter five, if you still got your Bibles open, let's go to John chapter five. We're gonna read verses 39 and 40. John chapter five, 39 and 40. So Jesus is having this long, drawn out conversation with some of the church leaders of his day. And he is saying, you know a lot of things. You've got all sorts of stuff going on. There's this and there's that. And he's having a debate and a dialogue with them about the true meaning of him and his existence and being there. So John five, 39 and 40 says this. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I can know every single piece of the book that God has granted to us and not have life. I can know the middle verse of the Bible. I can know all of the characters that are present. I can know the longest verse. I can know the shortest verse. I can know which verse has the most letters and which verse has the least. I can do all those things. But if I don't know the God who gave me this, it means nothing. And Paul says, let's get very clear that we need to know Jesus. Now, I have a friend who I met in college. His name is Brandon. And I heard stories about Brandon before I met Brandon. He was about six foot seven, so he's a foot taller than me. I've always looked up to him. Yeah. He was known for being really aggressive and very loud and quite edgy. And I'd heard the stories about him and I finally met him on a trip to feed the homeless in San Francisco. And I was a little bit standoffish when we first met. Now I'm a pretty friendly person, but he was scary. And I was like, peace, hey. 
And he was huge, and I had heard all the stories, and I was like, eh, I'm not so sure I want to get to know that guy. So after we had passed out food and spent time hanging out with the folk there in San Francisco, we got back on the bus to head back up to the college, and he was in line in front of me, and when I looked down, because I, I didn't want to talk to him, so I was trying to avoid all eye contact, so I looked down, and I'm like shuffling behind him, and I noticed that he was barefoot. And so I finally worked up the courage to be like, why are you barefoot? And he kind of um, looked chagrined. And I asked him if he had worn shoes to come with us. And he was like, yeah, of course I wore shoes. Well, it turns out that Brandon, big, aggressive, assertive, edgy, loud Brandon, had the same size feet as a homeless man in the park. And his giant, very expensive shoes were now on the feet of a man who had been wearing plastic bags for shoes. I had heard about Brandon, but when I got to know Brandon, I met a giant of a man with a heart of gold who would give the shoes off of his feet to take care of someone who needed it. I can know all the stories about Jesus, but until I know Jesus, I have nothing. So I think this causes us to reflect a bit about our own personal belief and knowledge. Do we know the sacrificing God who will give up every shred of dignity, of power, of authority, of life to be with us? Do we know the story or do we know the God? Do we know the Jesus of such power that he shaped the world? Do we know the Jesus who faced ever-growing and painful temptation and refused it? Do we know that Jesus? Do we know the Jesus whose very body held the fullness of God perfection and righteousness and truth and who would reach out and touch the very lame and sick and the dead among us? Do we know that, Jesus? Because it's very important that we don't just know the facts, but rather that we know him. C.S. Lewis put it really well. He says this, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I agree with that sentiment, right? The sun has risen, I can see the day. I can see the mountains, I can see the sky, I can see you all. I would alter it slightly, this quotation. I would say it like this, I believe in Christ as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see him, but because by him I see everything else. 
because the foundation is laid on Jesus, my life gives me a view. It is Jesus on whom my foundation is built. And that will shape my life. It is Jesus on whom my foundation is built that my salvation is guaranteed. Now, uh, yesterday, Aaron and M, I'm now calling Murdoch M, so in case you want to join me in that, we went on a little tour of celestial seasonings. And I found out that the Adventist impact in this community has been so profound that they named a coffee after, or a tea, after one of our former fake coffee beverages. Have you guys seen this? Rosta Roma? Do you remember Roma? It tastes like dirty socks in water. Well, they've got it flavored better. Rosta Roma, I haven't tried it yet, but I'll have it at lunch if anyone would like to join me. We'll try some Rosta Roma. So I realize that the Adventist influence has been very large here in Boulder. Good job. Well done. But I want to say this. I could be the best vegan, the best Sabbath honorer, the biggest Ellen White reader, the most prolific Bible memorizer, the most steadfast prayer warrior, and the most vocal second coming advocate ever to exist. And without Jesus, it wouldn't matter. Our salvation is guaranteed by one who loved us too much to quit on us. He is ranked, ranked supreme over creation, supreme over death, and has made and is making and will keep making peace between the divine and the creation. There's an amazing quote about this Jesus that I love. You can find it in the Review and Herald, which I know you guys all have the copy from August 2nd, 1881. Yeah, it says this. The shortness of time is urged as an incentive for us to seek righteousness and to make Christ our friend. This is not a great motive. It savors of selfishness. Is it necessary that the terrors of the day of God be held before us to compel us through fear to right action? This ought not to be. Why? Jesus is attractive. He is full of love, mercy, and compassion. He proposes to be our friend, to walk with us through all the rough pathways of life. He says to you, I am the Lord thy God. Walk with me and I will fill thy path with light. Shall we answer his call today? Will we walk with him and allow him to fill our paths with light? May it be so. And may Jesus, who is the first and the last, be the one on whom all of our foundations are built.